Please be seated. Our scripture lesson is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verses 1 through 17, and 31b through 35. Now before the festival of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray him. And during supper, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, got up from the table took off his outer robe and tied a towel around himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was tied around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered, You do not know now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. Peter said to him, you'll never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, One who has bathed does not need to wash except for the feet, but is entirely clean. And you are clean, though not all of you. For he knew who was to betray him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. After he had washed their feet and put on his robe and had returned to the table, he said to them, Do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. For I've set you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Very truly, I tell you, servants are not greater than their master, nor are messengers greater than the one who sent them. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Now the Son of Man has been glorified, and God has been glorified in him. If God has been glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. Little children, I am with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. I give you a new commandment that you love one another, Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you have love 
for one another. Let's pray. Bless, O oh Lord, the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts. O oh Lord, our rock, our strength, and our redeemer. Amen. <coughs> the Reverend Joachim Alexandropoulos, isn't that a good name, Alexandropoulos, was an Orthodox priest in the Greek Isles during World War II. He is one of the individuals memorialized in the Holocaust Museum. It's in remembrance of the day that the Nazis came to his island and demanded that the next day he turn over a list of all the Jews that lived on the island. When they came back the next day, he gave them that list. And it had one name on it, and it was his own. Alexandropoulos got it. Tonight's service starts the three days in the church known as the Tridom. It begins with Monday, Thursday. Monday from the Latin word mandatum, meaning the commandment, where we get the new commandment of communion and loving each other as Christ loved us. Good Friday, which in Old English simply means Holy Friday, when we recognize the death of Christ and his giving up of his spirit. Holy Thursday is a time meant to be spent in quiet and reflection. Historically, the church has stopped all of its bells from ringing. The organ after tonight isn't played until Sunday. That period between Thursday and Easter Sunday morning in, in Catholic old Anglo-Saxon terms was called the still days. And even there was a time when you weren't allowed to get married during these holy days. It was meant to memorialize our Christ. In other words, Holy Thursday, Monday Thursday, is our night of transition. The momentum shifts. The days of palm branches and riding into Jerusalem expecting a king are over. Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem and while the expectations have been over the moon, now those shadows will darken and the light will begin to lengthen. The focus turns to a towel, a basin and a bowl, a cup, some bread, and bare feet. The scene of this evening's text is 
the day before Passover in John's Gospel. Jesus and the disciples have gathered for an evening meal. It's an intimate moment. Everything's going along just fine until after the meal when Jesus begins to disrobe. Don't you wash feet before the meal, not after? They begin to imagine that he's gonna wash their feet what a ridiculous thing to imagine and Jesus doesn't even flinch like a prisoner on death row he is aware that his hour is at hand and this gospel makes it very clear that Jesus has known from the beginning this is his mission his life was given by God for a purpose, and when he's done, his life is returning to God, and he knows it's now. To be very clear, his purpose was simple and straightforward. Jesus loved his disciples, it says. He loved them fully and absolutely to the end. Jesus loved them fully and to the end. In loving his own, including Judas, Jesus expressed his completeness and capacity for love. By being so completely and fully without condition or exception, no exception, Jesus has demonstrated before his disciples what they are now to do. It's no easy assignment he's going to ask them to do. And it's this foot washing experience that is intended to illustrate to them and to permanently etch on their hearts and their minds that the meal they've just had is no ordinary one, nor is the experience of washing another's feet. What they've just gotten is Jesus' message in a nutshell. And their job now is to do the very same thing. The gravity of this moment is, is pretty unmistakable. How does anyone imagine being able to love like Jesus so fully, without exception, and to the end? Margaret Gunther, in her book, No Exceptions, says, I tend to love with my fingers crossed. I'm ready to love almost everyone, but surely I'm allowed one to hold out, one person whom I may judge unworthy of my love. But the commandment has no loopholes. <coughs> we know that there's a gap between what Jesus has asked of us, our good intentions to live into it, and the impending betrayals that are a part of living the lives we have. Henry Nouwen said it really well in his Genesee diary. He said this, 
He who thinks that he is finished is finished. Those who think they have arrived have lost their way. Those who think they have reached their goal have missed it. Those who think they are saints are demons. We really do want to be the kind of people that love like Jesus, and there are times when we pull it off. But even Jesus knows everyone at the table just won't understand. Before the night is over, one will think it's time to get out of this Jesus madness and sell him off cheap while the getting's good. A kiss is coming. Jesus knows it, and he takes it, and he loves him to the end. Do we get it? Jesus' final demonstration, his act of love, his last lesson, is going to be finished tonight, within hours. The disciples are going to experience tremendous disruption and turmoil as the guards come and take him away. Fear, confusion, abandonment, and complete chaos will take the peace of their hearts. Everything they've known about Jesus is just about to fall apart right in front of them. And the quiet that fills this space must begin to comprehend with us how Jesus must have felt accomplishing his mission of loving and hoping that you and I could figure it out in a way to pass it on. Within hours, the disciples will experience the tridium, the treatum. And you and I, as we experience it tonight, are invited to two lessons of our own. And the first one is that the love the disciples are to have for each other must be shown through mutual humility, a lesson that's going to frame the Christian community. Understand that John is the only gospel in which Jesus washes the disciples' feet. Washing feet was an act of hospitality offered to guests, but the host mind you, does not do the washing. Water might be offered to you and you could wash your own. You're a grown-up. Or, if it was a really special occasion, the household servant or slave might wash it on your behalf. But the disciples would sometimes wash their teacher's feet. Maybe that would make sense to them. But a teacher, no. A teacher doesn't go washing a disciple's feet. And it's not hard to understand why Peter would refuse it so sharply. It just isn't appropriate. It's not done. And Peter is missing it again. 
It's not hard to imagine, but Peter is not a bad person. He's just a little thick-headed. And when Jesus explains to him that he can't share in this powerful ministry unless he demonstrates his love in this way, Peter gets all, all, all washed over and says, well, hands, feet, and, and head too, if you will. At first, we believe that Peter's denial for being washed might be humility in his own right. But some commentators go on to suggest that what we're finding is Peter's pride. What is it that we would not be willing to do to humble ourselves in front of another? Can't there be lines about what's appropriate? Some boundaries that we might not wish to cross? Something that we don't have to submit ourselves to? Jesus goes on to say, if we can't humble ourselves to wash someone else's feet, how will we ever be able to forgive their sins of us or ours of ourselves or of sins of nation to nation, our sins to each other, what the liturgy calls our sins against each other thought, word, and deed against thy divine majesty. A humble servant must be willing to wash another's feet. Be willing to have his or her own feet washed in order to love others fully and to the end, even to recognize the disconnect between who we think we are and the way we actually live. Is it that Jesus is pointing out to Peter that his bias of who he is as a person and as a servant is beginning to, to take on traits that are not those of Christ. In Inc. Magazine this past week, there was an article called, Your Brain is Lying to You, How to Force It to Tell You the Truth. <laughs> I got to read that one. It says you've lived life and you've had experiences and the result is that your brain expects certain things to behave certain ways. And that's good because you don't always want to have to figure out how to open the door. You don't want to learn every time you go to the grocery how to pick out the best fruit. You do not want to have to realize in your bones every time if that dog's going to bite you or not. You need those kind of experiences and preparations. But what she does go on to say is that the bias that we have is often unaware to us. And so she recommends that we use uh, an employment situation in order to discover that we might have bias. And she said, what if, what if we look at men and say they are strong and protective and leaders and assertive. They're driven. They are providers. Something we think. Okay. And then she says, well, what do we think of women? Well, we think of them as mothering and caring and sensitive and supportive. They're helpful and emotional maybe even a little fragile. 
She says, now, think about that. If you were hiring someone and you looked at a guy and said, well, that guy, wonder if he's supportive and emotional and sensitive and helpful and maybe just a little bit fragile. <laughs> that that flip would tell you you're not looking at the person but through a lens. Imagine if we said, women don't really want maternity leave. We say that about men. She goes on to say that our bias is not related just to gender. Do we not think sometimes that heavy folks are lazy? Flip that. Skinny people are lazy. People with college degrees are better employees than people without. Flip that one. People without college degrees are better employees than people with them. You see, we aren't always aware of the things that might be keeping us from loving and seeing another with the kind of love that loves one fully and completely and to the end. Once we know ourselves and the depth of our desire to love, that love then takes on the shape of servant love. After washing their feet, Jesus asked the disciples if they know what he has done. The answer is that he has served them. His final farewell act is to serve, to demonstrate with his meal and his washing the full extent of his willingness to serve them as a criteria for how they are to love each other. Now, one of the most fascinating things about this scripture for me this evening was that I discovered in the commentaries that this is not Jesus saying to the disciples, love everybody, love your enemies. He's looking at them and saying, you folks have got to love each other. You 12. Now that seems a little odd until we stop and think about it because in just a few hours, everybody's hitting the trail, trying to take care of their own. What is it that's going to pull them back together as a community of faith? Because if they don't love each other, if they don't serve each other, then everything that Jesus has done stops tonight. How powerful it is to think that if we as God's servants don't love as Christ does and did, that what happens outside of these walls may not get there. The enormity of this servant love is so empowerful and real. What's new about this love is it's the kind of love that Jesus has for them. And it would become their defining claim for the rest of the world. 
There are so many divisions in our world that contradict what Jesus said we should be doing. We are divided by class, by race, by politics, by beliefs, by practices, by guidelines and polities. All of these divisions contradict what Jesus said would be our defining characteristic. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, how we love each other. Albert Pine might have said it best. He said, what we do for ourselves dies with us. What we do for others and the world remains and is immortal. You see, when we put ourselves behind ourselves and live for others, we put God in front of everything and that is what makes the difference. Don't know if you've read Letters to My Children by Daniel Taylor, but in it he tells the story of having been in the sixth grade back in the time when the teachers made you learn to dance. Anybody here do that? Have to be, oh, you had to, uh huh. They're the people that can swear to the horror of it. The girls would be on one side of the room, the guys on the other, and the guys would have to choose their partner. Imagine the sheer anxiety of the girls waiting to be picked. One girl was always picked last. Mary, during a childhood illness, had been sick enough that she had a, an arm that was drawn a bad leg, and she was heavy. She was always picked last. Dan Taylor's, one of his uh, associate principals during the time was a member of his church, and he comes up to him one day and says, the next time we dance, I want you to pick Mary, a sixth grader, and he goes, there's Shirley and Doreen and Elizabeth. And so he's, he's thinking in his mind, maybe if I stand at the end of the line, I'll have to pick Mary and it'll just look like that's what happened. So he makes it to the end of the line and don't you know that's where the teacher started. <laughs> So he's first, and, and he says, Dan, pick your partner. And he remembers kind of disappearing into himself and hearing this distant voice in his head saying, I pick Mary. And he said he's never had an experience like it in her life. Here, all of the girls were lined up, some smiling, some anticipating, and Mary's back had been turned. She knew she wasn't going to be picked. And she turned around with this glow on her face that was a mix of excitement and embarrassment and pure shock and even purer joy. He said he had to look away because he didn't deserve the look on her face. 
He went and got her by the arm, and she marched onto that floor, bent arm, bad leg and all, like a princess. It matters how we serve each other. It matters how the gospel is translated. What we know is that Jesus knew himself, that in that hour, he was getting ready to depart this world. How did he respond? By loving his own who were in the world, and he loved them fully and to the end. He knows that the Father has given all things into his hands, that he's come from God and he's going to God. How does he respond? He gets up from the table, takes off his robe, and as a servant slave, washes his disciples' feet. Jesus knows he's about to be betrayed. And his heart is troubled. How does he respond? He announces the imminent betrayal of someone and proceeds to feed him anyway. His goal is to glorify God, which is going to mean a cross tomorrow, but he loved them fully and to the end. And it is that end which signals our beginning. Can we love God? Can we love each other and serve the world in a way that is as transformational? Witnessing that Christ is right here. Jesus' kind of love is the only thing that I know that can do it. Amen.